TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. the bike nerds podcast this is episode 89 that's eight nine kyle thank you i, I love how you routinely um, <laughs> remind me of the formation of numbers numbers are tough they are for me and i just would like the world to have no question about what episode number we are <laughs> in case you like were slurred your words a little bit yeah 89. that's an eight nine it, and, and it's maybe the most important piece of information that people want to have right off the bat because they're, they're, I yeah. think they're particularly concerned with which episode number this actually Yeah, is. I, I'm glad we're in agreement there. <laughs> maybe I'm practicing also so I can be like an auctioneer. Ooh. Is that a, uh, is that a dream job of yours? Maybe it is today. Fascinating. I can't. Would you, would you be like would you be like a cool like cowboy hat wearing auctioneer? Kyle, of course. <laughs> I would have so many hats. I'm not and actually like bolo ties. As I as I said that I was like what other kind of auctioneer actually is there? <laughs> so I'm not yeah. sure if there are any other kinds. Maybe you you just have to wear a cowboy hat. There's not like a hip hop auctioneer, right? Not that I know. I've of. seen I've seen like auctioneer videos edited to overdub like hip hop songs, hip hop beats, yes. which is kind of cool. But I don't know that there's actually like a hip hop engineer, uh, not engineer, auctioneer. Maybe there is. We just don't know. Maybe we're living just in a little cowboy hat auctioneer bubble. Um, how are things in your world, Kyle? Things are great. It is, um, you know, I'm saying this, hopefully it's springtime around here. We've been having some, you know, gorgeous days, sunshine, 65 to 70 degrees, lots of, you know, nice little afternoon bike rides. It's still pretty, um, it's still pretty chilly in the morning. So we're doing something like, you know, a 40 degree shift throughout the day. It'll still be in the 20s or 30s when I leave to go to work. So it requires a coat and gloves to get to the bus stop. And then riding home, it's short sleeves. Feels good. That's nice. You got all seasons in one day. Yeah. It also means you carry around a lot of clothes with you all the time. Layering. Loads Have of you made any other 3D printer items? Uh, Not really. I've been... I've been a little busy trying to get a bunch of work stuff done. Haven't really spent a lot of time at at home, really, sort of thinking about fun stuff like three D printing stuff. But um, Ethan and I did make a six inch three D Porg, which is the the little bird creature from the Last Jedi um, huh. that we found online. That was just for fun. It took like seven hours to make it, so 
Oh, wow. Um, so, like, the printer ran for seven hours. For seven hours, yeah. And then the cat knocked it off the counter and broke its feet off. Of course. <laughs> almost, the cat's like, this almost, is the best toy that I've ever had in my almost as life. Soon, almost as soon as it was done printing, the cat <laughs> knocked it off and broke its feet off. So, um, you know, <laughs> that's, just, that's, that's just how it goes. Yeah. Um, but things have been things have been great here. Just been been really busy. I'm preparing, you know, to sort of start a ton of travel, and so I'm not I'm not so concerned about all the travel, but I am uh, trying to wrap up a bunch of projects before I leave, so I don't so it doesn't sit for for weeks at a time. Uh, one of my travels is bringing me close to you. I'll be in Nashville in a couple weeks. Yes, I will see you there. We're going to be at the National Complete Streets Coalition conference. I forget the name of it. Do you remember? Is it like intersections? Intersections. Or intersections. Yeah. So you know, I'll be there. Gonna. I'm sitting on the panel with Nick Euler and Lindsey Pinder from Memphis, talking about building bike networks in South Memphis. So that's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and we'll get to hang out for a couple of days while we're together there in Nashville. I'm so excited. I've already started planning where we'll eat. Um. Cool. How have you been? I I I see can you know constant updates on the Facebooks and the interwebs about lots of white bicycles in Memphis. Yes, we continue to build out our fleet of six hundred dash B cycle bikes. They're beginning to be turned alive. So we're installing the technology that has the touchscreen and makes them smart. And fun. So that's been really fun. And we're finalizing this week. We'll announce on the day this podcast is released, if everything goes as planned, we'll announce our new brand and our station locations and have two um, kind of lower level fundraising membership options to opt opt in for. So that's an exciting week for us. And everyone's. Very excited to see where stations will be located. Yeah, we're all we're on pins and needles. Are you ready yet on this episode to make a commitment of when the launch date is? No. I'm just going to keep asking until we actually get a date, <laughs> a date out of you. Um, did the did your um, slow ride start back up yet? Yes, we had our first freewheel last Wednesday, and uh-huh. we explored Tom Lee Park and had a great turnout and the weather was beautiful. So we've got about four or five more and we've got a few bike share bikes making appearances in the rides. So people get an opportunity to interact with the bikes, which is a great, a great kind of partnership between Explore Bike Share and the Memphis Medical District Collaborative and the Downtown Memphis Commission. Yeah. And did you also participate in the glide ride down in South Memphis yesterday? I was on my way to the glide ride and other explore bikes your staff made it there but i had um i helped a woman find her dog that was lost at the park and i got Whoa. off my schedule well you're like a real life hero so you was- you came upon a woman who was frantically looking for her missing dog I was at the park and this woman had two dogs and she took them both off the leash and Zeus, a beautiful husky, was obviously immediately like, nope, and just like took off running. And so this woman, Cooley, and my partner, Corey, they ran after Zeus, and I stood and held 
the other tiny dog on on a leash. And then we kind of looked around the park and Zeus went all the way home, (laughs) which was just a few blocks. But still, it's frightening. He crossed Poplar Avenue, which is heavy traffic. And he just ran. I think there was a lot of kites at the park. And he just went home. Like the the kites were the cause for him going home? I think so. I think they... Just he too, was like, I don't know what these are flying in the world. Too this much, scary. too much kiting happening. Yeah, so I didn't get to participate in the glide ride, but it looked like a ton of fun. Wow! John Pegg, who's our bike fleet manager at Explore Bike Share, rode like one of those crazy tall bikes. Oh yeah, have you ever ridden does one? That have a, no, does it have a name? It's called a tall bike. It's called okay. Yeah. Well, that's. Easy. It's, it's very easy. I mean, you were you were right on the money. So you've never you've never gotten on one. I've never gotten on one. You should try it. It's is just it it's just hard? like it's just like riding a bike. Really? Yeah. The hardest thing is getting on. Um. And so there's two strategies for that. There's the there's a strategy where this is be I would say the advanced version where you could sort of like begin to move forward with it and then you sort of get it rolling to a point where you climb it like a ladder mm-hmm. and you hopefully make it onto the top and begin pedaling before it tips over. That would be, I would not start out with that version. The The easier version is just to find something tall to stand next to, <laughs> to stand on top of next to it and then mount it just like a bicycle I like that. and start riding it. Yeah. It's just, it's just like riding a bike. The only like tricky thing is if when you ride it in one of those rides like that, Every time the group stops, you've got to like make sure that you have can either like lean on something or you have the confidence to jump all the way down and then get back all the way back up again. That that's the tricky part. Oh, I didn't even think it. about that. I know yep. for a fact that this ride had multiple stops. Yep. So that's that's the real key to it. It's not the riding that's troubling. It's the uh, it's all the stopping and starting. Fascinating. I hope there'll be more glide rides. This is just the kickoff. So I hope John will bring it. To future ones and i can observe yeah it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun especially when you get going fast it's a it's a whole different terrifying experience when you're yeah. fast <laughs> how many feet in the air are you uh i don't know i don't know would you say you're like eight to ten feet that's what i would say but i don't have a good sense of let's go with perception. that yeah I mean, it's, okay. just, it's just you like and me it. here yeah I like so, it. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I land on the subject. Uh, we built a few of those at my time at Revolutions. Oh, really? And some other wacky bikes. Yeah. What was the wackiest bike? Uh, I had a couple guys, um, Phil and Alec, who uh, they were high school students at White Station, I believe, White Station High School, and they were super into bikes. They would come down. They'd help us a lot. It was great. Um, but they also just wanted to build weird things. And so there was one bike that they built that we helped them build where in, we we added an, ac- an extra axle to the bicycle so that the front wheel and the back wheel didn't have to be perfectly in line with one another. And the bike sort of was like a snake a little bit. Ooh, did it actually ride? It did, but it was really weird. Really weird. It took a lot of like arm strength to sort of like stay upright and keep going. But once you got going on it, you could sort of like maneuver the handlebars back and forth 
and then it would sort of like coil like a snake down the street. Huh. What are these bike maniacs doing now? I don't know, going to college or something. I mean, that's some kind of very innovative sort of engineering and design work there. Yep. A little amateur welding, I'm pretty sure, was going on. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, if you should you should um you should Google if you're into sort of like custom weird bikes, there's uh there's like uh I think it's in Portland. Of course it's in Portland, but I think it's in Portland. There's like a a bicycle sort of like Mad Max style bicycle contest where you pitch your you pitch your bicycle machine up against somebody else's. It's sort of like a mix between Mad Max and like BattleBots and um you know like a one of those what do you call it like where the cars drive around and just try to smash each smash each other. Ooh, that's exactly how I would describe that sport. So I don't know the name. All right. But it's kind of like that. I, you should Google it. This is, this is a terrible because we don't know what we're talking about. But um, yeah, you should Google that. When do we ever really know what we're talking about? That's very, the beauty of this. Very rarely. Very rarely. <laughs> Feels like a relatively normal bike nerds conversation. For over 25 years, Bike Fixation has been designing and manufacturing bicycle parking and infrastructure products to help cities, neighborhoods, businesses, and schools become more bike-friendly. Bike Fixation has collaborated with architects, city planners, and transportation engineers to ensure their products are some of the most durable, innovative, and intuitive infrastructure products around. And for as long as Bike Fixation has been making their products in Madison, Wisconsin, they've been standing shoulder to shoulder with many of the Bike Nerds guests in supporting efforts to make bicycling more safe, more accessible, and more fun. Why? Because Bike Fixation believes a better world includes more bikes. To stay up to date on what Bike Fixation is doing for bike parking and infrastructure, visit bikefixation.com slash bikenerds. And now we're back with the Bike Nerds podcast. So, Sarah, I've been keeping today's interview and topic a secret from you. I know. Mostly because I just did it yesterday. <laughs> um, so I wasn't 100% sure where we were going to go with this. Also, mostly because it's pretty early here Sunday morning in Colorado, and you wanted, which is fine, but it also means that I had to edit the edit the interview down like last night um so i didn't i didn't prepare any notes for you and i thought you know rather than give her too much advantage here early sunday morning uh why not just spring it on her and so here's what i've done we're going old school we're going bike nerds old school today with an old school style interview where we interview an advocate and talk about their work i can't wait and not only that, but today's advocate, today's featured guest is someone that you and I both know very well. It's someone It's someone who was present at the formation of the Bike Nerds. Oh, wow. And I can't wait. And it's someone that we should have had on the show a real long time ago, but didn't for whatever reason. 
And it's pretty pertinent, I think, to your current work. It's pretty pertinent to some things that I've been seeing happening in Memphis uh, over the last couple of weeks. It's your friend and mine, Mr. Dwayne Jones. OMG! I'm so excited! Yeah, I called up Dwayne this week. I was like, hey man, we uh, have not had you on the show. That's a mistake on our part. Do you want to come on? He said, sure. And uh, we broke out a little time yesterday to to make it happen. And as you know, Dwayne is from a neighborhood and lives in a neighborhood called Orange Mound um, in the almost the very central part of the city of Memphis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a historic African-American community. Um, I lived very close to it. Um, on the other side of the railroad tracks, as we'll discuss in the interview, um, but Dwayne is maybe one of the most genuine and, and, and enthusiastic people working to make the city of Memphis better every single day. And he's been a he's been a longtime friend of of mine. I first met Dwayne. We we tried to figure out yesterday when, when I talked with him about when we first met, but it was definitely more than ten years ago. We're not exactly sure how much wow. longer than that. But Dwayne came into Revolutions Bike Shop when I was working there, and he brought a couple guys in from Orange Mound. They were interested in starting up uh, a bicycle repair service in in the neighborhood and wanted uh, Anthony Syracuse and I to train them how to be bike mechanics. And so Anthony and I put together like a 12-week course every single Saturday morning for three months. Dwayne and two two of his guys came in, and we, we taught them how to work on bikes. And, uh, that was the, that was like the first chance encounter, uh, that I had with Dwayne and, and he has remained, uh, uh, an, an advocate for cycling an advocate for improved neighborhoods. He's, he's remained a, a good friend since that period of time. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that towards the end of the interview. Um, the first thing I asked Dwayne though, is a little bit about Orange Mound just in general and what it was like to grow up in Orange Mound. You know, we used to always, uh, people used to laugh and joke, you know, said we were from Orange Mound, Tennessee. We considered ourselves our own little city within a city. We had an unofficial mayor, you know, and we pretty much were self-sustained because, um, you know, growing up in our neighborhood, we didn't get privy to a lot of activities. Even though the country club was across the railroad track, nobody went over there unless they got a job as a caddy. University of Memphis was like less than a mile or two away. And we never got a chance to even go on a field trip. So we were surrounded by a lot of affluent um, people, uh, a lot of educational opportunities. And I can remember being in summer camp and they took us on a field trip to Rose College. It was Southwestern back then. So everything we did was in a neighborhood unless a group took us outside for a field trip. Um, I went to Dunbar Elementary, which is an elementary school in the community. And because I excelled academically, I was allowed to go to uh, campus school, which was on the University of Memphis campus. That was a total different world. But it allowed me to interact with people of different races and different backgrounds because in Orange Mound, it was growing up for me, I would say 99.9% black. I never met white people unless I was involved in other activities. So it was uh, a unique experience growing up and being able to meet people in a uh, educational setting or a summer camp. And they were really nice to me. You know, camp, it was Camp Cordova. Cordova is a neighborhood. When I was at campus school, they took us to a camp. And we learned how to canoe, hike, read camp compasses. We stayed in cabins. 
So it was a, it were the people that came into my community that really brought an enrichment to our to my life, and um, coupled with my parents instilling values and keeping us in the church, um, and just having good neighbors that looked out when you did wrong, they told your parents when you got in trouble. But uh, a lot has evolved since then. But yeah, growing up in Orange Mound, it was Orange Mound, Tennessee. We were like our own little village, you know. Even though we went to Memphis. You know, a lot of people didn't have transportation. We never really left outside of the 240 loop. And a lot of people never went beyond the barriers of Highland or Lamar or the railroad tracks. Some people to this day don't venture outside of the community. Growing up in Orange Mound was a unique experience for me. Um, my parents, they were always big on education. And I didn't know until later on, elementary, junior high, and high school, that Orange Mound had bad parts. I just saw people doing things that my parents told me not to, and I didn't participate. So growing up, it was a lot of uh, government intervention. What I mean by that, they had a lot of social programs. They had park lunches, they had a bookmobile. They had a lot of activities that came into the neighborhood. So growing up in the community in the summertime, you know, people got summer jobs paid by the city. Uh, we went to the bookmobile because we didn't have access to libraries, and they would let us check books out when school were out in the summertime. And they provide us... Uh, healthy, nutritious meals, you know, a sandwich and chips and a cookie and some milk and so forth that we played at the parks. Uh, we learned box hockey and a lot of activities and stuff. So growing up in Orange Mountain was was great. And um, over the years, uh, the funding kind of dried up, the activities kind of dried up, and, you know, it was an influx of drugs and other opportunities that people got involved in. But that's when my parents uh, shifted gears and they made us. Uh, get involved in church activities, uh, football and at the school and every activity you can think of, junior achievement. My parents made sure that we stay active. Even though we lived in a community that was on a decline at a certain point, um, I had a, a mother and a father both in a house. And so they made sure that it speared us in a, in a good direction. So growing up in Orange Mound, you know, we used to get on our bikes and ride over to Chickasaw. That was like a long way away when we were kids. And go to their lakes and, and steal tadpoles and used to go to the community swimming pools, uh, chase out the popsicle trucks. So it was, it was a great experience as a kid. Um, going into high school, um, things kind of shifted. You know, the police would treat us a little different. Um, then you start learning about profiling. And your parents had to have a conversation about being home at a certain time. And then, you know, I did have friends that got off on the wrong track, using drugs, selling drugs. You know, that's when marijuana and crack and stuff became very prominent in, in inner city. But my parents, you know, they, they instilled in us the, the need to get an education and, uh, you know, be productive citizens in our community. So, Sarah, just a little history lesson about Orange Mound. Um, you know, if you go to the Memphis Library archives and take a look at sort of some of the zoning maps from the 1930s, the 1940s, 50s, 50s, and 60s, you'll find that Orange Mound is, is sort of a classic uh, neighborhood where black citizens were actually allowed to to live in the city. This, they were surrounded in some ways by red line neighborhoods that prevented them from moving there. And you'll actually see on some of those maps, you know, he references sort of the Country Club, the Chickasaw, some of those locations on these old zoning maps say whites only. 
and then there's remarks about sort of Orange Mound, which is just south of these areas, literally across this, the the railroad tracks, yeah. um, being places where black families could actually live. And so by the 1970s, Orange Mound is the single greatest residential single family uh, neighborhood for black Americans in the whole country. It's it's it, it becomes a place of prominence throughout the entire throughout the entire United States. Um, for this community that gets built up. And then when Dwayne's talking about sort of, you know, leading out of the 70s into the 80s and 90s, um, there becomes this, uh, there's this exodus that happens in Memphis, right? If you look at sort of new areas get annexed into the city, areas like Hickory Hill and uh, Whitehaven and places further to the east, these are sort of like, you know, the new suburbs in some ways. And, um a lot of people are begin to move east and so as people get means they're leaving the the inner city and what's left in some ways is uh you know is is uh what we what we would sort of expect to find in any other place and so orange mountain today largely resembles sort of you know uh, a community that once was but um is no longer there in the same form that it that it used to be and not there in the same form that it's often remembered in um, I think I actually haven't heard his kind of story growing up. So that was really interesting to hear his own perspective of what it meant to grow up in Orange Mound in Memphis, Tennessee, in the South. Um, and, you know, as someone that has been spending a lot more time in Orange Mound as part of our service area for Explore Bike Share, it really is just so crazy how the the tracks are this actual sort of physical barrier between Cooper Young um, the Chickasaw Country Club and those neighborhoods over there, the University of Memphis, um, you know, Orange Mound really is just across the tracks. Well, not just the railroad tracks as a barrier, but if you think about the other boundaries of Orange Mound, including like Lamar Avenue, yep. you know, there there's a there's a lot of historical transportation projects that sort of frame this neighborhood mm-hmm. and, and not in positive ways. You know, it's it's so crazy to think about, like, there's a country club on one side of the railroad tracks and uh, a really poor and impoverished neighborhood exactly on the other side. Right. They, you can see you can see each other across these railroad yeah. tracks. And we'll talk more about those tracks here uh, in a little bit with Dwayne. But I asked him to uh, also describe what uh, how would he describe the people uh, in Orange Mountain? How would he would how would he describe the community? I would describe them as prideful, but um, left behind. And the reason I say that because um, we've always had pride in our community. But as time has evolved, the next generation and the generation after that, we're looking at maybe second, third generation. They're lost because the same services that kept us occupied as young adults and children are no, are no longer there. You know, we had people that they took advantage of opportunity of education and they moved out of the community and never came back. Well, actually, I, I have left for school. I went to college and I came back. And then um, I was uh, once married, no longer married, and uh, we moved out east. And so when I became single, I saw an opportunity to come back into the community and rebuild. Uh, one thing is I, I have a lot of relatives. Um, my parents live in a peripheral. They don't actually live in Orange Mound. They live in Cherokee Heights, which is neighboring. But I have aunts, cousins, and I have 
I know well in excess of 40 or 50 household relatives that live in Orange Mound. So a lot of people I know and love still live in this community. And I just know as a contractor, I can make a difference. Involving people in cycling, I can make a difference. Involving people in community gardens, I can make a difference. Helping um, a family from Second Presbyterian work on the Neighborhood Christian Project at the Women's Resource Center, I can make a difference. Helping them um, build and renovate a duplex and turn it into my cup of tea, I can make a difference. So now I'm trying to find vacant lots and, and put a program together to make people homeowners again. Kyle, I've always been impressed with Orange Mound residents in terms of the deep neighborhood pride that is identified, whether your grandparent grew up in the neighborhood or whether you're still are living in the neighborhood. Today, I was at a community meeting in Orange Mound last week and just to hear, you know, from an intergenerational standpoint, you know, across generations, you know, folks identifying to attending Melrose High School and identifying, you know, the block that their neighborhood I mean, their block that, you know, their grandparents and parents and then themselves, you know, live on, you know, made me kind of jealous because I don't have that, those sort of roots to, to a neighborhood or a place. Yeah, Orange Mountain's a really special neighborhood in Memphis. Um, you know, you and I spent some time with uh, the principal of Melrose High School. And, you know, Memphis is one of these cities where where you went to high school matters a lot to people. Um, when you meet somebody for the very first time in Memphis, the oftentimes the very first question is, where did you go to high school? And people can instantly sort of know a lot about you based on, I guess, where you graduated from high school from. And Melrose is a school whose alumni is maybe one of the most active alumni, high school alumni mm-hmm. I've ever seen. Um, and it's a, it's a school in a community that loves football. It's football team. You know, we, we, uh, we spent some time with the principal of Melrose high school on, in the Netherlands when we were sort of forming the bike nerds. And, you know, there's, I think Dwayne is right. There's so much pride in sort of being from orange mound. And it, it dates back to the, you know, to that prominence that I mentioned right in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, even people who have moved away will still tell tell you that they're from Orange Mound. I remember um, last summer uh, at the Places for Bikes conference, Van Jones, you know, sort of CNN commentator, former Obama administration uh, advisor, uh, is on the stage and he mentions that he, you know, he was born and grew up in Orange Mound, Tennessee. Right? It's it's something that sort of you know that people really identify with and they find a lot of value and a lot of pride in. And you know, to to Dwayne's point. It's it's a neighborhood that that has all of the right building blocks that I think somebody would look for in terms of connecting the dots and in helping to sort of improve the current situation and you know his commitment there is one where he just feels like he has an opportunity to help people and he can make a difference um, and you know in doing that I I asked Dwayne how would he describe what he actually does. Right. If let me ask you this first question, Sarah. If somebody said, "What does Dwayne do?" What would you say? Everything. I I joked with Dwayne <laughs> when we were talking. I said, "Dwayne, it's probably easier to list the things that you don't do, you don't do, yeah, than, than things <laughs> that, that you actually do." But I asked him, you know, just to give a context for our listeners, Dwayne is a bit of a Renaissance man. He's uh, he's he's got a his hand in everything. Man. He's working on housing, building houses, housing policy in Orange Mountain. He's working on community gardens. He's a huge cycling advocate. 
Um, and he has, you know, he does mission work in like five international countries. Uh, he, he plays the saxophone. I know <laughs> he's like an ordained minister at his church. And it's just like, uh, so I asked him in his own words, Dwayne, what do you do? And I've been asked this a couple of times and I try to come up with something creative, but, um, I just, I make things happen. Um, I have a lot of people that I know they are good meaning people but they go to meetings and they love to meet to say they went to a meeting. I'm results oriented. So I like to uh, come up with a concept uh, or idea, but turn it into a plan. Ideas don't get anything. Plans turn to action and action makes stuff happen. I know people, they are set up and they develop and they're pondering, they get input, they do research. I'm sort of like the guy that goes out in, in the military field, you drop me down. You see somebody with a gunshot, I'm not going to ask him for his insurance card and ask him 50 questions and fill out this questionnaire. I'm going to apply pressure, a tourniquet, and we're going to fix this thing right here on the spot until we can get you to a better place. Orange Mound is in a, in a difficult place. So on any given day, I can be a contractor. I can be a community advocate. I can be a cyclist. I can be a gardener. So technically, I'm trained as an architecture engineer who went back to become a general contractor, who went back to decide to be a developer, who rides a bike and loves the garden. And, you know, it's a lot of stuff, you know. I'm grad engineer and I got a master's in management. I'm working on my doctorate in organization leadership. Just got to finish my dissertation. But licensed contractor was a licensed realtor. And I take a lot of certifications and do a lot of stuff. I'm an information junkie. But um, I sleep maybe four hours a night because I'm always up. My mind is always churning. And um, ordained preacher with New Olivet, do international mission work in four different countries. So I don't sleep much because it's always something to do. But that being said, being single with no children at 50 years old, I kind of just got on this routine and I'm just rolling with it. I guess you can get a lot done if you're only sleeping four hours a night. I mean, that sounds like potentially a secret. But I mean, it it is. But I also think it's just interesting to know, you know, Dwayne is somebody who I've always known to be uh, a person of action and not a person to sort of, you know, have a, you know, like he said, you know, listen, I'm I'm not here to sort of talk about fixing this problem. Let's get out there and fix it. And uh, we'll sort of figure it out right what we need to do right now while we sort of think about what has to happen in the long term. And I think that spirit is what's so captivating and so powerful about Dwayne's advocacy is that he's he is not one I know for sure, right, to sort of like let's bring together, you know, in a group of people and talk about what we're gonna do for the next six to twelve months and we'll put together a game plan and build a budget around it and then we'll take some action. He's like, Let's go out if we need a community garden, let's go out and build a community garden. He's got a truck, yeah. he's got some dirt. He's got some guys, you know, that he's employing in the neighborhood, and they're going to get out there and build a community garden. It's going to be done, um, and it's it's a it's a bit of a, you know it's it's a refreshing take on on advocacy, I think, as we know it in some ways. So Dwayne is involved in maybe 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 the maybe his most important project that, that Dwayne is involved with is he's working to develop affordable housings uh, affordable housing in Orange Mound. And I think what's amazing about this is Dwayne is not doing this with uh, with a team of investors. There's no 
you know, special tax financing mechanisms being used here. Dwayne, you know, to his credit, in the the style of advocacy that he says is, hey, people need affordable places to live. I'm a contractor. I know how to build affordable places to live. Let me build them and sell them to people at an affordable price. And so we talked a little bit about just sort of the changing nature of uh, of housing in Orange Mound and uh, and what it takes to you know to sort of like launch a game plan where you're trying to build affordable housing. So we went from uh, one of the top or the first Black African American. Uh, single-family household communities in the nation to a community now of um, majority rentals because the people that bought the houses, you know, the next generation came along and they wanted to move out to Hickory Hill, Germantown, other areas. So they turned the community to rentals. And with rentals came Section 8 and people who um, don't have the same values of homeownership. Um, I'm not saying that's that's not stereotyping Section 8 people, but I'm just saying rental people and Section 8 people were not indigenous to the community and did not have the same feeling of pride. So as time has evolved, um, the housing uh, surplus has become depleted of ownership. Um, The city services have been lacking. We don't have a library. We don't have a grocery store. And they just closed the nearest grocery store, the Kroger's. And our neighborhood is flooded with pawn shops, liquor stores, and we take all of our resources outside of the community. So there's no money circulating in our community. And me as a contractor, I try to rebuild the community, but they won't even give financing for construction. You know, we're in a, a zone where it's difficult to even do new construction or renovation. If you don't, if you're not a cash investor or somebody that just loves the community, it's not an ideal place where people want to come spend money to build businesses, even though. We're um, big consumers, and we, we go out to eat at Houston's, Applebee's, and all the restaurants that, that are in the surrounding neighborhoods, Cooper Young, Midtown, Germantown, East Memphis. So we have to drive outside our neighborhood to do everything, including banking. We're on the bank. Without having services and so forth, it's kind of difficult to generate revenue for the type of people that want to actually live in the community. The biggest thing is with construction, uh, the cost of construction is what it is. Sticks and bricks in Midtown, Germantown, Orange Mountain are the same. It's just the cost of land and the value of what people will pay. So with new construction being at a certain cost, um, I'm reducing the carbon footprint, trying to push uh, one and two bedroom houses, which will keep it within a, a modest range. A lot of people talk about $150,000 as an average you know, starter home. The person that's working here in Memphis at a warehouse or a food chain, they don't make enough to pay for $150,000 house. So for me, an affordable house would be 35000 to 65000 for the average person um, that are working in those particular jobs. And once you create uh, affordable housing, we can look at you know uh, education. We can look at providing additional service. But once people have shelter, that's the number one thing that they need. And the thing is, they can, we have houses in the community right now that are renting for 600 800 and you have investors that come in and they basically paint, may put a roof on, no central heat in there. And people are paying more in utilities than a typical person would pay in mortgage. So you're paying three, four or five hundred dollars in utilities and you still have to pay five, six hundred dollars in uh, rent. And it's difficult for a typical um, household. 
you know, the Orange Man community. So I'm trying to uh, change that uh, dynamic and, and offer a different product. I think the, the work that Dwayne's doing specifically, I think, is a great example of his sort of action-oriented advocacy where, you know, there are large problems, you know, that he talks about in Orange Mound that, you know, is a wealth gap, high rental rate, no amenities or services from banks to groceries. But he's found this kind of brilliant plan, which is to actually create affordable housing for people to own, to start build that wealth. And then to his point, you know, we can figure out kind of these other disparities after that, but let's just get a level of security, a level of commitment to the neighborhood with, um, you know, reinvigorating homeownership in the neighborhood. If you're like me, you use internet search engines every day to go down a rabbit hole of artsy, fixed gear enthusiasts, blogs, videos, and photo journals. But sometimes I worry that my obsession with skidding bike tires played over tranquil electronic dance music is being sold to unscrupulous advertisers, or that the money being made from my search results is being used to fund groups seeking worldwide automobile domination. What if I told you there's a search engine out there that invests their profits planting trees and regenerating deforested land around the world rather than selling your personal information to the highest bidder? Ecosia is the search engine for people that need accurate and quick search results, but that also want to help the planet and keep your information private and safe. Here's how it works. You search the web with Ecosia, search ads generate revenue for them, and then Ecosia uses this income to plant trees. When you search the internet with Ecosia, you don't have to worry that your personal data will wind up in the hands of the car lobby. Ecosia believes that an individual's personal data, including their search queries, are their own business and no one else's. So far, Ecosia has planted more than 20 million trees, and their goal is to plant 1 billion by 2020. Come join the community and search for a cause. You're going to search the internet anyway. Why not plant a tree while you're at it? Visit ecosia.co slash bike nerds to plant your first tree today. That's ecosia.co slash bike nerds. E C O S I A dot C O slash bike nerds. And now we're back with the Bike Nerds podcast. This is where our conversation um, turns a little bit to an to a in depth conversation around housing. Um, so you didn't know you were getting this today, Sarah, but uh, you know we're moving we're moving into some deep stuff here because Dwayne's been really involved in trying to build affordable housing for for almost eight years, almost as long as I've known him. He's been working on on this issue, and it didn't start with building affordable housing. It actually it actually started with his drive to provide housing for people experiencing homelessness um, in Orange Mound and surrounding areas. And so here's a little story that he told me about how he got involved in the the work of building affordable housing over the span of eight years. I actually started trying to work with the homeless because there are a lot of people that are sleeping on the street. So I tried to do a fundraiser to put um, tiny houses on wheels. And I did a GoFundMe, was trying to raise 5000 for three units, 15000 I got 300 bucks. Well, I ended up crying over spilled milk, called one of my fraternity brothers, Jeff Carr in Nashville. And uh, he's a pastor of a church over there telling him my dilemma. It's like, man, I just can't believe this. Um, we brainstormed for about two or three weeks. And he ended up, I built a model here in Memphis, drove it up to Nashville, and he lived in it. And we raised over $68,000 on GoFundMe. So I took a 14-man crew from Orange Mound, 
and spent a week in Nashville off-site, and we built um, six tiny houses on wheels for the homeless. They had Murphy beds, drywall, wiring, and they were on trailers. We didn't do bathrooms because um, we built them and donated them to uh, Green Street Church of Christ. And basically, they had a, um, a lot that had tents. And so we couldn't build them there because the homeless people were sleeping on the ground. But they had a common cooking area and common restroom area. So that allowed us just to provide you know, sleeping quarters and living quarters. We did a custom Murphy bed that folded off the wall. And they were only 60 square feet. They were like six by 10. So we built those in Nashville. It rained off-site and we had flat tires. But through it all, we made it. And we took trucks and we did a caravan over to the site. And once we got to the site, we parked them, did a dedication, donated them. And it's taken off. So they got high schools and other churches to donate. And um, it was amazing. We just did it out of labor of love. But when we were doing a caravan, somebody called the news people. So we ended up getting on the front page of the Tennessee. And we did the dedication on a Saturday. Woke up Sunday morning. We're eating at Shoney's. And somebody said, hey, are you these guys? I'm like, what? So the waitress brought us newspapers. Like, aren't you these guys here? So we were on the front page of the Tennessean. And by the time we drove back to Memphis, we were on uh, USA Today cover. Then we went from there and had an interview with Al Jazeera. And within a month's time, we had like 14 million views and hits. So it kind of got hectic there for a while and uh, tried to call the news people. It's like, hey, now I got this buzz, this spin. We're going to do one in Orange Mound. We got a big lot. We do the same thing. Couldn't get any news coverage. Nobody still wanted to donate. So I was sitting at the house and I saw the story they picked it up on the AP. They ran a story here talking about the project. And somebody's like, hey, won't you call a guy? He lives here. He just went to Nashville to do it. I never, I never got any feedback from the news stations or anybody to this day. So it was amazing that they covered the story because it was put through the AP out of Nashville. Sarah, as a communications professional, <laughs> how come how come Dwayne couldn't get any local press coverage for trying to do that work in his hometown? I had talked to Dwayne during that time, and I have no idea he did everything right. But I I remember. I think that... it's a good example of some opportunity for improvement from our local media. <laughs> well, I I remember that time as well, and he's right. I remember he was on the phone twenty four hours a day doing interviews with with news stations around the country and around the world. It was it was crazy. I mean, he would you'd be like hanging out with him. He's like, sorry, I got to take this call. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's Al Jazeera. It's Al Jazeera. Be right back. <laughs> but I mean, it fascinating, right? I mean, is it do you is it because Dwayne's was trying to do this work in Orange Mound? Was that the there was no significance due, due because local news and local uh, people of privilege write off a neighborhood like that? I would hate to say it out loud, but I do think that that I feel like it had to have something to do with it that it just wasn't on anyone's mental map from the media's perspective that there could be a positive news story coming out of Orange Mound. Dwayne also speaks really great to this, that, um, you know, Orange Mound is representative negatively in our local press, even when, you know, crimes or acts of violence happen in a neighborhood that is next to Orange Mound is not even in, you know, the, the, the neighborhood limits, but is branded as an Orange Mound kind of problem. And, an Orange Mound issue um, because it the perception of Orange Mound, uh, Orange Mound is um, different than what is actually on the street. 
Yeah, I I think that I think that actually is a big problem and I think as I as I dove deeper with Dwayne about, you know, the status of building the homes now and the challenges that he's continued to come up against, I think that's a recurring theme around you know the problems that he's facing simply building homes for people to that they can afford to live in and own in their own community into code enforcement and do you know they call a tiny house on wheels a um, rv and it's illegal to park an rv on a residential lot in shelby county so i say it's more than one way to skin a cat i put it on a foot and in the foundation they said, well, you have to have a restroom. I said, okay, I can make it a little bigger. So I went from 60 square feet to 300 square feet. They said, well, the minimum you have to have is 400 square feet. I said, okay, well, I'll make it 480. So I, I developed a blueprint of 480 square feet. And people are like, nobody want to live in that crappy house. It's too small. And I was like, well, let me see. So I put a filler out there on Facebook. And the first day I got like 22 people that wanted houses. And it was surprising that the demographic was people uh, younger than 30. They want a small house and a small mortgage where they can use their disposable income to go out to eat and travel. And there were older people that lived in high rises that didn't want to be in the the community of a lot of people. They wanted their own space, but they didn't want a big house to have to maintain and manage. So then I started thinking, so, hey, these people can have a garden at their house. They can have a bicycle. They can have Internet access. I started thinking about all the peripheral stuff that could go with it to rebuild the community. My goal now is to provide affordable housing, and it's taken about eight years to get all these components of the mortgage, the land, the size, and the network together. It's been challenging because if you haven't done it, they don't have anything to compare it to. So I've been having difficulty with uh, appraisers giving me value, and I've been having difficulty with lenders giving me um, loans for people. Anything under $50,000, it's like, well, you need to go up on the price of your house when I can't get the square foot price from the appraiser. And then I don't want to jack the price up. I want to make it affordable. So if I'm using lots that are existing, that have the utilities, the curb cuts, and already subdivided, I, I can weigh the developer cost. So, you know, you, you're offering houses at ten to $15,000, what would be typically a market value. And I can give you a prime example. Um, the railroad track really is the divide because in Cooper Young, they just put three houses there, 3,000 square feet, and they're selling for 300000 And the square foot price is about $80 a square foot. I tried to put an 832 square foot house, which would be about $64,000. They would not give me the value. They said they didn't have anything to compare it to that small and new construction. I'm like, well, okay, let's just start it. The appraiser person said they don't want to be the first person to start the market. Some of the barriers, I just, I couldn't even believe it. <laughs> and it's amazing when... I'll give you two stories. Um, I have a, a house that's 2,200 square feet. It's rented out. I rent rooms out. It's generating income paid for. And um, call an appraisal out and call my insurance agent. Now, both of them are from the Department of Commerce and Insurance, the same state regulatory agency. And um, my appraisal guy came back. He's like, well, we're going to have to appraise it for $140,000. I'm like, 140. He said, well, you know, I do replacement value. I was like, well, you know, this thing is really not worth but about eighty, ninety thousand dollars in this neighborhood. I'm like, yeah, but we have to do a replacement value. I said, okay. He wrote the policy for 140. Met the guy out there to do the pros. He walked around. I was like, oh, this property is generating income, huh? Is it paid for? Asked me a bunch of questions. And he went and tried to pull some comps. Couldn't find anything that was like about 2,200 square feet. So he found some Rios, uh, foreclosed properties and different stuff. He gave me an eight. 
$15,000 appraisal. So you got two organizations that are governed by the same entity at the state, Department of Commerce and Insurance, and one values it at $18,000, and one said they had to value it at $140,000. I'm like, really? So, I mean, that's how extreme things are. And then, like I said, I built a new house, 832 square feet. It was uh, two bedrooms, one bath, 10-foot ceiling. Like, okay, sell it for 67. I had a contract on it for 64. It's like, okay, let's get this appraisal and um, go to the close. Sent out for appraisal. I had two people tell me that they would not even give me a value. They didn't give me a low value. They would not give me a value, period. Brand new house. They said, we don't have anything within two miles of this, this, this house. It's like, well, good. We can start a precedent. No, no I'm sorry. I, I can't do it. I'll be going out on a limb. Because a lot of existing houses are maybe forty, fifty dollars a square foot, and new construction is going to start you at seventy dollars. So I'm like, new construction is new construction. I'm paying the same cost of materials as they're paying in Germantown, Midtown, Hickory Hill, Fraser, and everywhere else. I just want value. Now, if you want to knock me on the land, okay, we can buy a lot for five or ten thousand Orange Mountain. You may go to another neighborhood and have to pay twenty-five to forty thousand. I can. I can accept that, but I still need the same sticks and bricks, things like that that really just uh, made it difficult. And um, I have one plan that's a 480-square-foot house, and I have a two-bedroom, two one bath, one is 648 square feet, the other one's 832. Based on those models and being able to build something at 70 to $75 a square foot, depending on amenities, those houses range in between thirty-five dollars to $65,000. Um, I got a working relationship with Brody Womble at Iberia Bank, Sean Austin at The Works, and uh, Ruth Phillips at Bancorp. It took a while, but they're willing to offer a mortgage product to these people. It's still a work in progress, but uh, I, I can see some, some, some great progress happening because I partnered with the Medical District Collaborative and talked to them about Zone 1, Zone 2. They're trying to do the same thing, so I'm pitching my model to them. Um, Went to the incremental development with John Anderson, and he wants to partner and do some. So it's a lot of people that want to do the same project. I just wish I could do it in Orange Mound first, but it may be doing it somewhere else so I can come back and do it in Orange Mound. Sarah, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, I, I, Dwayne and I talked sort of a little bit offline, more in depth about all of that. But, I mean, sort of just first of all, I mean, we should just mention – you know, th- there's some really sort of like bureaucratic, standard, regulatory things that were mm-hmm. that are really preventing Dwayne from from moving forward. The challenges that he had overcome, and I think if we looked back, we'd probably find that those nobody really knows why those requirements are there, right? Nobody knows why your minimum house has has to be 400 square feet. Nobody knows, uh, you know, really sort of like why. Uh, those those sort of archaic languages are in our zoning and development code. But, you know, I suspect that they're rooted, you know, historically in systemic racism yeah. know, that, that, that prevented people from, uh, you know, living affordably in neighborhoods and that they've just survived. And I think if probably if we looked at zoning codes across the country, we'd, we'd probably find some relics of, uh, you know, sort of the 1960s and 1970s in there. You know, and I, and I loved I loved Dwayne's approach. He's like, "All right, can't be on wheels. I'll yeah. just put it on a foundation, <laughs> right?" I've I got mean, a solution to that. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's my favorite part about Dwayne. You know, he just he he was sort of just 
uh, wants to know what the obstacles are so he can overcome them. And I, and, and he's going to overcome them right in, in, in his, in his work. But, uh, you know, think about a less motivated person. Think about somebody out there who, uh, you know, is maybe interested in helping, but doesn't have the same drive and passion and determination of Dwayne. You know, these things can be, can quickly become and mount up and can quickly become real obstacles and real barriers to people to, to doing this work. And I think about if somebody like Dwayne, who's so motivated and so passionate about this work, took him eight years to get to where he is today, ready to roll, ready to, you know, to get some people in some homes. Uh, you know, it's no wonder that cities aren't tackling affordable housing in a really real way in, in each of their cities. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I also think that there does seem to be the sort of theme that there's less of a willingness to support the neighborhood and orange mound represents neighborhoods, you know, while Orange Mound is unique, you know, there are plenty of neighborhoods like Orange Mound across the country um, that because of perceptions or history of disparities and disinvestment, you know, they're off, they're off the radar from a bureaucratic system. And I just, it, it actually kind of breaks my heart that Dwayne's like, you know, maybe the, our affordable housing will be launched in a neighborhood outside of Orange Mound and we'll use that as our catalyst to be able to actually do it inside of our neighborhood. Um, and that alone, I think is also just his perseverance is impressive and unique, right? There's one Dwayne Jones. We need a thousand of them who can all only sleep for four hours a night. Uh, I edited this out, but when he, when he said, um, that he has found some traction by going to neighborhoods that, you know, that you and I would sort of consider to be upcoming neighborhoods, yeah. kind of the hip place for redevelopment, and that the ideas that he's been proposing in Orange Mountain for eight years are gaining traction in places where, you know, if I can be stereotypical, where sort of, you know, wealthy hipster people are, you know, do, doing good work and are meaning well. But the fact that that it's that it's gaining traction in those neighborhoods and not in Orange Mound is deeply unsettling. Well, and, another thing. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you because yeah. I also think there's and there's neighborhoods that are his, are majorly African American. Some of those neighborhoods he mentioned, but they have been fortunate enough to secure funding from white national foundations, who may be able to provide access to different sort of services to become more palatable to investors or to banks or to financers or even to kind of navigating the city government. And Dwayne is doing it, you know, as a community leader with not necessarily deep ties to national funders or even local funders or kind of those sort of city kind of political, you know, trying to navigate that piece. Yeah, the reason I cut out my comments to Dwayne afterwards is because I, is because I cussed a bunch. And I, if there's one thing Dwayne doesn't do, is Dwayne doesn't yeah. cuss. It's one of the th- it's one of the things on that list. And so I I cut it out, and I was just like, uh, it it makes it's infuriating. It, it think, is in some ways, right? And here's Dwayne, you know, going having to go along with it. So hopefully, right? Hopefully, potentially, maybe uh, the re- the repercussions of what happens there can can come back to Orange Mound. Oh. But it makes me sick. Just what I mean, oh, it's <laughs> it's it's just it's 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 evidence of a system that 
perpetuates poverty and and perpetuates uh, discrimination of people in a way that is, as you dig into it, becomes more and more obvious. And to the idea that you know, yeah, the, the I I I'm not here to sort of I don't want to sort of denigrate the work of what other people are doing in those communities, but it but it is exemplifies what white privilege means in so many yeah. ways um that it's that it's just uh it's infuriating and I, and I and I literally was just I, I had to cut it out and I told <laughs> Dwayne, I told Dwayne I was going to cut it out but I was like that just makes me so angry yeah um to to know that work now that you know that being said you know Dwayne to Dwayne's credit you know he he didn't he didn't let it stop him he, and he hasn't let him stop him and he's he mentioned some of the the financing partners uh, our good friend and the friend of the podcast Roshan Austin is yep. is one of those partners you know who are who are helping him sort of overcome some of those obstacles it still feels like right they're having to do like um they're having to sort of like do a step around just to make this thing work yep. in in so many ways there's not a direct channel for them and even if others are having to do step arounds as well, if they're not as severe as what Dwayne's uh, been having to go through. And to to know, you know, that his ultimate goal at the end of the day is just to give people affordable options to live back in their house. And, you know, his point about um, his point about sort of the appraisals on one side of the railroad tracks to the other, <laughs> I thought oh, was, is, yeah. is, is, it's, it's spot on. Right. And, it's it's also insane, right? Because I love I love his phrase: "Sticks and bricks cost the same." Right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm going to use sticks and bricks for everything. You know, he's like, yeah. "It costs the same. The two by fours cost the same on this side of the track that they do on the other side of the track." It's just you potentially also purchase them from like the same Home Depot. They for sure do, right? Um, and to know that you know the appraisers come back and the valuations become so drastically different, and Dwayne's unwillingness to uh, increase the price of his house to meet those market forces, those systemically racist market forces, um, is just a testament to his character and a testament to uh, the amount of work that still has to happen um, every single day. Absolutely. You know, this is the Bike Nerds podcast, and uh, when Dwayne and I first met, we weren't we weren't talking affordable housing; we were actually talking bikes. And so I asked Dwayne. You know, uh, why is he into bikes? How does biking fit into his mission to provide affordable housing? And uh, you know, what was it? Uh, what was it that sort of you know got him rolling at becoming Orange Mound's top bicycling advocate? I I grew up riding bikes. Like I told you, we used to get on our bikes and go over to Chickasaw and steal tadpoles and ride back. And um, we used to ride our bikes to the Orange Mound swimming pool and the fairground swimming pool. So cycling has been an integral part of my life. I, mean, I had huffies and you know, swings, all kind of dirt bikes. And as I grew up, I would see people in my community riding bikes, but they were riding in the wrong direction. And then I would see a lot of stolen bikes. The reason I knew they were stolen, they always spray paint a bike after they steal it. So you see people riding around with spray painted bikes trying to hide this insignia and a lot of stuff, but anyway, I love cycling, but I could never find anybody to ride with, and I was just looking on the internet and just reading articles in the paper, and I saw, I said, hey, place called Revolution, let me go ahead and check these guys out, because my intent was to start a bicycle shop in Orange Mound, because uh, we, I took three guys, we went to your training program, we had, it was a great program, 
But the people that went through the training with me, one guy got a job and couldn't work it, and another guy moved out of town. And I was the only person, and my intent was to provide opportunities for others. I wasn't actually going to run the bicycle shop. I wanted to support it and participate. So when I went over, I wanted to get in, involved in rebuilding bikes because you all had that program where you build a bike and you can have a bike. You all had safety. You had a lot of stuff. And it was close, right across the railroad tracks. And then when you um, started working with the city, I wanted to come to the meetings and make sure that Orange Mile was included. I remember a meeting you had at the Orange Mile Community Center. I think there were like two people there, me and another lady. I wanted to make sure that we had bike lanes coming down Park Avenue, going up Sims. We were included. A lot of people in the community, they were complaining about it, but you know, we need to be part of the circle. So we can network from uh, South Memphis to Cooper and Young into other communities. So when I came in there, I had a, a goal just to make sure that my community was uh, had a voice. I, I didn't find anybody else in the community that was looking on the uh, policy or actually having a shop and doing some other things. You know, they just wanted to get on a bike and go to the store, you know, go visit a friend because they couldn't afford uh, a bus pass or they didn't have a car. So cycling, I saw it as an avenue to get people healthier. Because, you know, in the food desert, everybody's going to the store or eating fast food. So cycling had a lot of benefits. I was just looking long term. There are quite a few good things, but there have been a few negatives as well. Uh, The positive have, you know, we have uh, pop-up rides, you know. I kept asking people to ride, and I kept trying to put together a fleet, build some bikes. And it worked good for a couple years, but eventually I found – a bike share that um, was getting rid of a fleet in Chicago, and I purchased 30 cruisers. So now I do pop-up bike rides, and I meet the community center, and, I, and we actually go all over the city, but it started out as Orange Mound uh, bike ride. So now it's just bike ride 901 because we do go to other parts of the city. We typically do like a four-mile ride. Um, we have people blocking off the streets, and I take them around showing the, the neighborhood schools, the elementary, high schools, and uh, historical churches and show them a few um, locations like the tea shop I mentioned in the neighborhood Christian Center, the House of Orange Mound, and just uh, uh, highlight the growth in the neighborhood. Even took them by the, a new house that I built, a two-bedroom house and so forth, just to let them know there is some development coming. So, you know, for people to carve out an hour, hour and a half a day um, to spend time, it's been great. And when I initially started, uh, there are two things that really spurred me to actually get a, a fleet of bikes. Um, Sylvia, you know, one of the people, uh, well, she's running revolutions now. One of the people that went on the Amsterdam bike tour with us, we committed to networking. So when I came back and I wanted to do some rides, I didn't have any bikes. And I would ask people to ride, and a lot of people said, well, if I had a bike, I would come. So I partnered with Sylvia, and she allowed me to rent 15 bikes, and I picked them up on my trailer and uh, took them over to the community, and she brought people, we call it, uh, call it the across-the-track-and-back ride. So we did two of those, and people from Revolutions in the Cooper Young area, they rode their bikes over to the Orange Mountain Community Center, where I had a fleet of bikes and invited people to ride. So we did um, two of those, uh, one, two years in a row. And that was a great, um, a great kickoff to developing. It was like Orange Mountain Slow Ride. Sylvia was very instrumental in, at first. And then we had some people that uh, committed to donating some bikes. 
never heard anything else about it. Didn't come through. So I was like, well, let me see if I can find some bikes. Because I pick up pieces of bikes on the side of the curb. I still have maybe about maybe 20 pieces of bikes that I'm going to continue to put together. Because I would give away bikes to people I knew that needed them for work or just basic transportation. But when I saw this opportunity to get these cruisers, you know, these bikes are like $800 to $1,000 each. I can't afford this. So I would just every couple of days get on the internet and checking, checking, and checking. And I ran across this organization in Chicago that was getting rid of a fleet. And I looked, and these bikes were like 90 bucks, 100 bucks. I'm like, oh my God. So I reached out by email and I started off like, hey, I need 20. I'm coming up. And it went from 20. I got some more support, and somebody, um, a friend of mine, purchased 10. So I went up there and I got 30 bikes and strapped them down. And everywhere I go, people are like, hey, you selling bikes? No, no, these are going back to Memphis. So. I brought them back to Memphis. I'm like, okay, now I got to find somewhere to store them. So I don't have enough space. So my parents allowed me to store them in the back uh, area of their house. And um, I just do pop-up rides. Um, a friend of mine came up with the name Bike Ride 901 because we started doing stuff outside of the Orange Mountain community. And we wanted to have a name that was inclusive. So now everybody's talking about nonprofits. I said, no, I just want to pull the bikes out and pop up and let people ride. Well, you need to charge. No, it's free. You know, just come ride with me. So we've done uh, Big River Crossing. We did the Green Line, Shelby Farms, uh, Frazier, South Memphis, Soulsville, Orange Mound. And we've done those like multiple times. It's just a matter of people show up. And um, Rashawn at the works, you know, provided us with helmets. Everybody that rides does have a helmet. And we have um, 30 bikes. I think we have... uh, Three different kinds. We have a red, a, a gray, and a, a black bike, and they all have uh, different speeds. I'm not exactly sure how many of each, but yeah, I, I didn't think long term, but some people want to uh, use our services, and I think I may have to start doing a minimal fee because repairing tires, uh, paying somebody to help me transport, and things like that. I've been doing all that out of my pocket. But now the demand is getting really high. It used to be maybe one or two rides a week. Now people want rides Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, twice, and Sunday at the church. So it, it's almost a part-time job for somebody. Um, it's the lanes, they've been very helpful. We still have a lot of people riding the wrong direction, but at least they're using the lanes. I think it makes it safer. Um, the awareness is a, a little bit greater. People are not as prone to run you over. They're a little bit nicer in the community cyclists because there are a lot more people cycling. And um, a lot of people are having activities and they're including us because of our cycling capacity and people that do cycle and people that do come to the neighborhood. And with the lanes and so forth, my uh, my brother was just telling me today, he's like, hey, did you guys come through here riding? I was like, no, it's probably the hightailers because they normally go down Sims and cut through the side of Orange Mound. And when people see all these cyclists come through, it's a, it's, a, it's a good feeling to be included or at least to have people come through. I mean, every Saturday, it's like the Tour de France uh, to Orange Mound people to see all these cyclists come through. It's, uh, it's an inspiration to be included. But it's a feel-good moment. We still don't have a, a per se bike shop. Um, the ridership is, is up tremendously. But I think with the involvement from the police is one of the, the negatives. 
they use it now because, you know, there was a law and people trying to do it for safety reasons to make sure you have a light at nighttime. But people have bikes and they go somewhere and people, police use it for a reason to pull people over and frisk and search because they don't have a light on their bike. That's another example of action as advocacy, seeing, you know, a gap in transportation opportunities and finding a low cost solution. Um, via bikes to kind of fill that. I think too, you know, it's it's an interesting case study in you know, uh I, I think back I think back to sort of my time at Revolutions and I feel like if I'm being honest, if I had some truth serum today, I would tell you that a lot of the early interactions that I had at at Revolutions yeah. and probably a lot of the interactions um just in general um uh were were fairly accidental um they weren't very deliberate and to know you know that that people like Dwayne sort of you know sought sought uh, sought us out to help with this mm-hmm. problem you know we were available but it, but it wasn't something that was really on our radar and i i think a lot about you know, Dwayne over the last decade or so that I've known him has really helped me uh, shape and and sh- has shaped sort of how I view my own advocacy. And I think this is a really good testament to that, you know, that, you know, we thought we were doing a really a lot of really good stuff. But this place that was right across the railroad tracks from where our shop was um, really wasn't sort of an active point of interest for us. Right. And, it, and it took somebody from that neighborhood to come to us to say, hey, can what can you do to help? Um and um yeah it's just it's just uh it's just this is one of those really fortunate things i think for uh for me personally that that i got to meet Dwayne in that circumstance so i asked Dwayne what uh what the future for orange mound was you know what how is his work going to transform orange mound what what's the next step for him and so here's his, his here is his response there's three components one, uh, affordable housing, and I'm going to try to get people to um, partner and do some policy changes and actually um, hire people from the community to build houses. Second, I want to have healthy food choices, partner with uh, Grow Memphis and make sure we can have community gardens as well as people having gardens in their backyard. And the last component is I want to make sure cycling is an everyday opportunity or option. What I mean by that, all the schools in the neighborhood, we have children that walk to school. Some walk maybe two to three miles. We need to have bike racks at the school. We need to have uh, some kind of donor that can come in and help me get affordable bicycles that they can buy or um, borrow for school. Because a lot of kids are late to school because when it's raining or it's cold, it's difficult to have a a child walk. Be it high school, um, middle school, or elementary. You know, two, three miles because, you know, um, they they don't have a lot of buses. Uh, busing is not an option in, in Melrose, at Dunbar, at Hanley, in the schools in the community. So I'm thinking healthy uh, opportunities to keep our children. They took PE out of school, physical education. So cycling is a, a, a needed necessity. I'm sure they're getting healthy by walking, but cycling would be a faster opportunity, uh, something I think they can carry over to adulthood. So those are my, my main, and how I plan to get there, 
Uh, I got to quit being in a silo. I have to reach outside of my community and continue to partner with people like um, Sylvia at um, Revolutions, partner with Rashawn at The Works as far as financing, and finding other people who are willing to pour resources and help me develop this community. Um, I'm, I don't have the only vision for the community, but I know I have a big vision. So with the help of other people, um, I believe within the next five to 10 years, we'll have uh, quality housing that's affordable, with community gardens, and a bike at every house. Sarah, Dwayne has taught and continues to teach me so much about what it means to be a real community advocate. And, you know, his sort of vision for the future, I think, hits on a lot of the themes that we discuss here on the show about the ways in which bike advocates can be more effective at their work. It's, it's about building broader partnerships. It's about being partners in seemingly unrelated areas, you know, thinking about affordable housing, food access, access mm-hmm. to schools, you know, how bicycling fits into that for Dwayne. And, you know, I would tell, I would say Dwayne is not primarily at the, at the, you know, the first step is primarily not a bicycling advocate, but I would also say that Dwayne is one of the most powerful bicycling advocates. Yep. And I think, I think that's a testament to you know the ways in which Dwayne's advocacy for his community, for his neighborhood, for the place that he grew up in, the place that he cares about, um, spreads beyond just you know what his own interests actually are, um, and it encompasses so many more people and so many more partner organizations that that allows you know allows him to flourish and allows his work to flourish uh, in so many ways. Well, Dwayne is an Orange Mound advocate, and so whatever kind of falls into advocating for a better Orange Mound, I think Dwayne finds it. I firmly believe that if uh, every neighborhood... Well, let me ask you this question. Do you think every neighborhood has a Dwayne Jones? No way. Do you? I don't know. That's a, it's an interesting question that I asked just a moment ago. Oh, that's, that's, that was an interesting question, Kyle. <laughs> but I mean, I would say, let me rephrase the question. Do neighborhoods that need the kind of help that Orange Mound needs, that Dwayne has identified in this interview that Orange Mound needs, do those kinds of neighborhoods all have a Dwayne Jones living and working in them? No. I'll give, I know of a neighborhood, as an example, in Memphis, that is being affected by revitalization efforts that have to do with kind of large institutions. And there has been kind of this struggle about this fear of that there is not a Dwayne, there isn't a neighborhood leader in the neighborhood. Um, And so this kind of fear that there's not a conduit to actually get real resident feedback because there's, you know, 300 residents and no one is really organizing them. And so they're working on how to get a third party kind of community organizer embedded into the neighborhood to really give the neighborhood the voice to maybe disagree with everything that they're doing in the neighborhood surrounding them. But kind of this fear that there's not a Dwayne and what does that mean for a neighborhood? You know, if there is not someone kind of advocating for, for the best thing for, for the residents of that neighborhood. Second question, do you think every neighborhood needs Dwayne? Like I I think back to our interview with uh Charles Brown last year and something that he said during that interview 
um, to correct. He corrected me in saying um, something along the lines. I, I mentioned something about giving power to the voice of people in neighborhoods. And what Charles said was that people's voices already have power and we we have to listen to them wherever they're at with or without yeah. with that with or without sort of a leading voice like Dwayne. Mm-hmm. So I would ask the question, you know, you know, my, my I, I guess maybe my philosophical sense of this is that every neighborhood has a thousand hundreds of thousands of Dwayne's in them. You know, maybe we just aren't doing a good enough job of 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 listening. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I would almost rescind my comment and agree with your comment. Well, I don't know if we either of us are right. Maybe we're both right. That's what I tell my kids. We're both right. <laughs> we're both. That's good, probably good parenting. Um, I'll just, just in closing, I'll just say, uh, if anybody uh, goes to Memphis and you want to, you know, meet up with somebody who's doing amazing work, um, you know, you're going to, you can, you can talk with Dwayne is one of the most open people in the entire world. He's looking for partners. He's looking for help. He is uh, willing to tell you about all the things that he's gone through already so that you don't have to do it again. If you want an awesome bike ride, just go with Dwayne on a bike ride. He's going to give you the best tour of Orange Mountain you've ever been on. You're going to see sites that you wouldn't see otherwise. Uh, and Dwayne is just an amazing human being. So if you have the opportunity to ever run into Dwayne, uh, I would say take the opportunity um, and uh, just spend as much time with him as you possibly can. Here, here. Sarah, it's been great to, uh, you know, sort of do an old school episode with you this week, featuring the work of amazing community friends and partners. Um, yeah, I'm so thankful you brought it back. It was awesome to hear Dwayne, and I know who I'll be calling after this podcast to check in with. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, if any of our listeners have suggestions on topics for the future, make sure to reach out to us on the Twitter or the Facebook or email at the bike nerds podcast at gmail.com. Sarah, have a, uh, a wonderful, uh, next couple of weeks launching bike share. I know, Thank you. I know the date you're going to be debuting the release date here on the podcast. It's, we will it's, be de- it's debuting your, it. It's your <laughs> highest priority. I know is to debut. <laughs> Uh, when you're launching Bike Share here to mostly to people that don't live in the city of Memphis <laughs> and on a show that happens once every two weeks. <laughs> yeah, it'll be breaking news for sure. It'll be a se- it'll be the same communication strategy as those other media outlets in Memphis. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe what you here's what you need to do: uh, get it on get it in Nashville's AP, and then Memphis will yes. run it for you. Thank you. I've learned so much. <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. Pleasure as always. Bye, all. <laughs> the Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OAM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoamnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, the Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com. 